Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, when we look at this next beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. To just simply see peacemaking as simply helping people to get along would, just be, would be to see this beatitude in too simple of a way. The fact that the peacemakers are going to be called sons of God because they are peacemakers shows us that this kind of peacemaking is tied to spiritual peace. All right, you, you, We would all agree the world needs peace, correct? But is the world going to have peace apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ? Remember when the angels came at his birth, they said, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward men on whom his favor rests. When the angel appeared at the tomb and the guards saw them, they were very, very afraid and fell as dead men. Yet when the women showed up, the angel said, Don't be afraid. How come the angel said, Don't be afraid to the women, but said, Be very afraid to the guards? The, angels were look sorry, the women were looking for Jesus. The guards were not. And there's a difference. And so when we hear peacemaking, I don't want you to think for a second that we're supposed to just have everybody get along. That's not what the passage is talking about, and as you're about to see. Peacemaking is spiritual peacemaking, having people become in a right relationship and at peace with God. Go to Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. If you are not justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you at peace with God? No. Does he love you? Yes. yes. But are you in a right relationship with him? No. You are, the Bible says, his enemy. We're not going to take the time to read it, but it goes on further in chapter 5 here that it says, when we are his enemy, he died for us. Keep this in mind. The world today, even though they think they're okay, are not at peace. And actually, the Bible says there is no peace for the wicked. They may pretend they have it, but deep down, they don't. We've seen famous people all over the globe recently committing suicide. Millionaires who have famous TV shows, and they seem like everything's together, but they don't have peace. The peace we're talking about is peace with God. And for those of us who have this peace with God, we're supposed to be peacemakers and what does that mean? We're to be telling other people about how to have peace with God. Go to Romans chapter 15. You're in Romans 5. Go over to Romans 15. Look at verse 13. It says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and what? Peace in what? Believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. How do you get this peace with God? Through believing. We've already seen it through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 11 through 22. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that's the Jewish people, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross and thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, and your fellow citizens, your saints, with, with the saints, and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Again, over and over in this passage, the reason why Christ came was to bring peace. That's why the angels announced peace on earth to Him on whom His favor rests. He offers it to the whole world, but only those who are in a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ are at peace. 
And for those of us who have received this peace, we're supposed to be peacemakers, not, hey, hey, I got it and you don't. And unfortunately, there's a tendency for us to be satisfied with the fact that we're saved. I have to wrestle with this myself. Anybody here ready for the rapture? I am. But you also got to keep in mind that the Bible says the reason the rapture hasn't happened yet, he's not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. It's very easy for us to be grateful that God waited until at least 1973 when I got saved, you know, or whatever year it was you got saved. Keep in mind that if we're still here and he hasn't come to get us yet, it's because the last Gentile hadn't come in yet. And we need to be out there sharing this good news that we have, this peace that we have. Blessed are the peacemakers. They're the ones that are going to be called sons of God. Now listen closely. People who have been born of God, who have been made pure in heart, live in such peace, or should live in such peace, that their righteous life is an attraction to a world where there is no peace. I'm going to tell you a story that happened Sunday night. Hadn't planned on it. My notes are already written, but I made a little scribble note about this. I have to tell you something that happened Sunday night that goes with this. I had gone this past weekend to preach in Virginia. I was flying back from Raleigh-Durham. That's where the airport I was going in and out of. And uh, I got on the airplane Sunday night in Raleigh-Durham to fly back to Orlando late at night. As I always do, uh, I just say, Lord, if I'm supposed to talk to the person next to me on the plane about you, let me know. But otherwise, I'd sure like to sleep. And I'm telling you, my wife will tell you, I am a gifted sleeper on the airplane. Some people say, well, I can't sleep on a plane. I'm asleep before the plane takes off. I go, I fly southwest, I get on the plane, I look for a window seat, I just take the window seat, the head's against it, I'm gone. When I was younger, I used to always want to make sure I stayed awake because I didn't want to miss my free Coke and peanuts. But I'm at that age now where I can get a Coke when I want one, I'm just going to sleep. And so I prayed, Lord, if I'm to talk to the people next to me, you let me know. Otherwise... I'm just going to go to sleep. And there was a man and a wife next to me. The man was on the aisle. The wife was in the middle seat between us. And I didn't hear anything. So I went to sleep. And I was out. About 45 minutes into the flight, I am woken up because she spilled her beer all over me. <laughs> Not only had she spilled her beer all over me, she was wiping my lap in apologies. <laughs> I woke up. She's apologizing. I am so sorry. I am so sorry. She is so, I mean, imagine yourself being a petite lady next to a man my size, sleeping like a bear who has been tranquilized, and you spill your beer all over me. She is just apologizing. She's afraid that I'm going to erupt like Mount Vesuvius. I start laughing because the whole time I was waking up, God was talking to me and said, I've given you your opening now. And I said to her, I said, it's fine. I said, I didn't even feel it. Feel it. it was a light beer, you know? That's what I told her. I said, it was, a, it was a light beer. I didn't even feel it. And so she says, I'm so glad you reacted the way you did. I said, I just need you to write a note to my wife to explain this situation. And I start laughing, and, and I said, I've never, had a, I've never drank a beer. Now I'm going to go home smelling like I've had 10. And uh, she goes, you've never had a beer? And I, I said, I'll tell you why if you promise it won't scare you. She said, okay, try me. I said, I'm a preacher. And she wasn't that scared, but was very curious, and her husband as well. And we had the chance to talk. I was able to give him one of my business cards. I shared the gospel with him. They asked a lot of really interesting questions. It was a great opportunity, but it all came about because I didn't get angry when they spilled beer on me. It was interesting, when the flight landed, we were near the front, we got off. If you've ever gotten your luggage in Orlando, by the way, it takes a while for the luggage to get there. We get, we go take the trams, we get there, the luggage is already coming out, our luggage from some plane is already coming out. This couple's son starts to go look for their bags, and the husband says, no, no, son, there's no way that those will be our bags already. We just got here, those are some other flight. But as he was saying this, I saw my luggage. That was our flight. And I walked over and I said, it's got to be our flight, guys. Here's my bag. And literally came off the plane, grabbed my bag, and started heading for the gate. They go, this is what they said. They go, are you this blessed all the time? <laughs> and I said to them, I said, I pray for you to be as blessed as I am. And they said, we are so glad we met you. And I turned to her and I said, and think about this. You would have never met me if you hadn't have spilled your beer on me. 
I would have slept through it. Go to James chapter 3. So, by the way, their names are Tim and Margie. If God brings them to your mind, pray for them. Pray that they would come to know the Prince of Peace. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. By the way, when people in the church start to show off how smart they are and try to compete with others over how smart they are, look closely at who's actually influencing them. For where there's jealousy and selfish ambition, where that exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Yeah, you might say, well, I'm at peace with God. Well, good for you. But the Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace havers. Do you see what I'm saying? Is the fact that you're at peace with God made you to live at peace? Are you actually full of joy and peace and gentleness and kindness, self-control, the evidence of the Spirit? Or are you someone that claims to be a Christian but looks just like everybody else? Do you have a temper? Do you get easily irritated? Do you keep a record of wrongs? Do you have a hard time forgiving people? Do you honk your horn most of the time when you're in traffic? You see, there's one thing to say you're at peace with God. It's another thing to allow that peace manifest itself outside of you. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Folks, praise God. The reason I reacted the way I did was because I prayed going to sleep, Lord, you show me what you want me to do. And he's the one that said, I'm in this. I'm in this. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verses 5 through 14. It says, you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Don't miss this. We've just talked about the fact that if you're in Christ and have been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ, you have peace with God because of your belief. But now God wants that peace that you have to be manifested in your life in such a way that the world sees real wisdom from above, which is peaceful and gentle. And how does God produce it, though? For you to react in peace, you have to be going through a struggle. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's easy to be peaceful when you're sitting on the beach and your toes are in the waves. Is it easy to be peaceful in the voice he wants to produce peace, real peace that's noticeable to the world? They need to see it in traffic. The people around you need to see it at your job when the boss doubles down on the stuff he expects of you and doesn't expect you to have any extra time to do it. This deadline's the same. I heard the story about the guy that was golfing with this preacher, and he hit a great shot, and he said, praise the Lord. And the guy says, preacher, that's great, but I didn't hear you say praise the Lord in the bunker on the last hole. 
Folks, are you at peace with God through Jesus Christ? Yes, hopefully. If you are, is that truth been allowed through the Spirit of God doing His work in your life, manifesting itself so much that if someone spills beer on you, your first reaction will be to laugh? Not to go, oh, I need to calm down. Oh, I need. No, no, no. <coughs> Let the peace of God be what rules in your hearts. Blessed are those who spread peace. Blessed are those who are the peacemakers. Those are the sons and the daughters of God. Now, I'm going to take you to an interesting passage that kind of ties to this. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we'll look at verses 12 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. To the rest, I say, not I, I'm sorry, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Doesn't mean he's saved, but there's a sanctification process going on. They've been set apart for God's purposes. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Again, not that she's automatically saved, but there's a sanctification process going on. She's been set apart. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, if you're in a situation where your spouse is an unbeliever and they're, they're okay with being married to you, stay married. God's doing something. And who knows? Maybe by the conduct of your life, they'll be one. It doesn't mean you have to preach to them every day. Actually, this passage in Peter we may get to later in our study where it talks about how godly women, God will use their gentle, quiet spirit to win over their husbands. Not with words, but with actions that are attractive. Folks, I'm going to ask you again. Are you at peace with God through Jesus Christ? Don't stop there. Blessed are those who allow that truth of the fact they're at peace with God to take such a root in their heart that they're at peace. And as they go into the world, the people around them have his peace start to manifest and show into their lives. And they come to know him as well. Oh, there's good news. For the peacemakers, spiritual peacemakers will be called sons of God. Go to Romans chapter 8 real quick. Look at verses 14 through 17. Romans chapter 8 verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Isn't that interesting how the scripture says all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God? It doesn't say all who have the Spirit of God. It says, all who are led by the Spirit of God. I'm going to throw something out to you. Does you just saying that you have the Spirit mean you have the Spirit? Does someone saying, I'm saved, mean they're saved? But how do we know whether or not someone's really saved or someone really has the Spirit? I heard it over here. The fruit of the... Again, folks... In our, in our churches, and, and, and there's no better way to do it. In our churches, when someone wants to join the church, we, we ask if they've been baptized, and we ask if they've trusted Christ as their Savior and all that, and we take them on statement of faith, and that's the best we can do. But just because you're a church member doesn't mean you're truly saved. Just because you say, I've been baptized and I'm a Christian, I've trusted... What's going to be the true evidence, the Bible says, that we're truly born again, who the sons and daughters of God are? The fruit of the Spirit. And the only way that's going to be seen is over time. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons to, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself, the Holy Spirit Himself, bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Go to John chapter 1, one more passage. John chapter 1, look at verses 10 through 13. 
John chapter 1, verse 10, He, this is Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, this is the Jews, and His own people didn't receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I'm going to ask for a show of hands here for this. How many of you grew up and there was a family in that town that had a lot more money than you? And you as a kid thought, man, I wish I was in that family. I wish I was born into that family. Anybody else have that thought? I, a lot of us probably have. I could tell you the food family was in our town. And they, had a bi- they owned a business in town. They owned the hardware store. And they had money. Here. I mean, they had a lake house. So you have to have money if you get a lake house. And uh, I remember as a kid thinking, man, I wish I was in that family. Guess what? If you are a child of God, the king of the universe is your daddy. I think that if we don't have peace with that, Satan's messed with us a little bit, has he not? It's time we let the truth of the scripture sink into our hearts. And when it does, it's just going to splash out on the people around you without you even trying. And the people around you are going to go, how come you're always so happy? By the way, I've had people ask me that a bunch over the last so many years, and that makes me feel good. Because of people saying, how come you're always so happy? I have to say, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And I'm also married to Becky, and that's why. (laughs) All right. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Thank you. Thank you. Guys, take notice, buddy. I'm I'm giving marriage lessons tonight. Blessed, here's the last one. And this is interesting how all the Beatitudes end with this one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Along with that, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice this, this persecution is because of our association with Jesus. This is what we're talking about here. There's all kinds of persecution that goes on in the world. The persecution we're talking about here and that God's talking about is the persecution that happens because of our association with Jesus Christ, our righteousness, our peace. This is not talking about suffering that you go through because of your sin. Because sometimes we suffer because of stupid mistakes we make, correct? So go to, when, when you get pulled over for going 90 in a 55, the police officer is not persecuting you. Okay? Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verses 12 through 19. And by the way, if you're going to go 90 and a 55, take your Jesus fish off your car first. 1 Peter 4, look at verses 12 through 19. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, I just shared with you a story about people that reacted in a positive way when they found out I was a preacher. I could tell you lots of stories where that is not the case. But the Bible actually says we shouldn't be surprised when that happens. Yet most of us today are trying to live our lives in such a way so that never happens. We're trying to be relevant. We're trying to be accepted. We're designing our services in such a way that the lost person can feel comfortable instead of convicted. 
Folks, we, we don't want persecution for the sake of Christ. I just heard recently that this one man, he's an evangelist and he shares mostly with Muslims. He said, if we've been called by God to be fishers of men, we should not be surprised when the fish don't want to get in the boat. When you go fishing, the fish don't help you. They fight against it, even though it's for their best, if you will, you know, in the sake of the gospel. In the same way, don't be surprised when the world reacts negatively to you sharing the gospel. We think, how can I share it in a way in which they won't react negatively? Well, the scripture says we should expect it. We shouldn't be surprised by the world's negative reaction to us when we speak the truth in love. When we lovingly tell them that they are spiritually poor, that they should mourn because of their sin, that they have no righteousness of their own, and that they should hunger and thirst for it from the only way that can, they can be saved, which is through faith alone in Jesus' sinless life, His death for our sins, and His resurrection. We shouldn't be surprised if we say to them, there's only one way, and it's already been taken care of through Jesus, and your faith in what He's done is the only way you'll be reconciled to God. And by the way, if you reject this, you will go to hell. God's done everything in His power to keep you from it. But if you go, you chose to go there. We shouldn't be surprised if the world's reaction is, not only do I not like it, I'm going to do everything in my power to keep you from saying that anymore. We shouldn't be surprised when we tell the world that the Bible is very, very clear that homosexuality is a sin. And even though the world has all these laws changed and they all vote and then march to have the right to justify their sin, it doesn't, we shouldn't be surprised when the church, when they say that homosexuality is a sin, that they all of a sudden call us homophobes. When you speak the truth, the world is going to be against it. You know why? I can prove it to you. Um, Go to John chapter 15. You see, there is this man that lived on the earth, which we know was also God himself. And he came into the world and he lived a life of love. Oh, by the way, not only did he live a life of love, it was perfect love. He never honked his horn in, the, in, in traffic. He lived without sin. And the world called him crazy, demon-possessed, and then they killed him. He did it perfectly. And the world's reaction was, we don't want you here. Do you, do you remember the story of when Jesus healed the man who had the legion of demons? And this was a man whom they had tried to bind him with chains. Everybody in that area of the Decapolis was freaked out by him and afraid of him because he was just, he was terrorizing the town. Jesus comes, casts the demons out of the man. The demons go into the pigs, and the pigs all commit Harry carry. The townspeople hear what's going on, because the guys that owned the pigs went and told the town people. The townspeople came back and looked and saw this man sitting there in his right mind. And this was the guy that they'd been afraid of, and he was now healed. And their reaction was, would you please leave town, Jesus? You cost us money. Folks. It's time the church, we don't need to try to be offensive. There are those who pride themselves on, I like offending people. No, no, no. The gospel's offensive by itself. Just share it in love. You don't need to make it offensive more by you being offensive. Again, I think we just read in the book of James, that's demonic. That type of wisdom. That's not gentle. So when Christians are proud of the fact that I got in their face and I told them it. No, no, no. That's, that's not from God. Share it in love. If they receive it. Great. If not, move on. Don't be surprised. John chapter 15, look at verses 18 through 21. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. Don't miss that. This is happening. This persecution for the sake of Christ will be happening because of our association with Jesus. I'm going to say this to you, and I hope you hear it, but you probably won't until later on. 
When someone rejects you because of your faith in Christ, when you lose friendships because of your faith in Christ, when your neighbors don't want anything to do with you because of your faith in Christ, it shouldn't be because you've been a jerk of a neighbor and saying you got to get saved or you're going to hell. And hopefully you're a neighbor who, when you cut their grass, you edge theirs. Hopefully when you're a neighbor, that when you're, they're sick, you bring them food. We have neighbors that don't know the Lord and actually living homosexual lifestyle right now. Have been for years. Two guys. We've been next to them for 18 years. They know where we stand, but they also know we love them. And when I went through hot non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, one of those guys went through it one month ahead of me. He had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at the exact same time. And as they went through it, we were praying with them. And then when it was all said and done and I was healed and he was healed, Becky brought him bread. Even had little scriptures of how Jesus is the bread of life. And they wrote a card to us saying, we are so thankful that you are our neighbors. But if they reject you because of Christ, don't take it personally. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Jesus. And Jesus said, when people reject me, they're not even rejecting me. They're rejecting the Father who sent me. Folks, I don't think you realize how much our connection with Christ means that when people go after us, they're really going after him, and he takes it personally. Go to Acts chapter 9. I love this. Acts chapter 9. If you know anything about Paul before he got saved, his name was Saul, and he was after the church. He did not like the church. He actually was having the church people put to death. He was actually standing there holding the coach while they stoned Stephen. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 5, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Did you see that word there again? People say, well, he, it never says anywhere he was a murderer. Yeah, he was. Look at it right there. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And they went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Folks, do you see it? When they go after you, you don't take it personally. They're going after Jesus. And by the way, when they go after you, Jesus takes it personally because it's him they're going after, not you. So if the world rejects you because of your faith in Christ, expect it. If they did it to Jesus, don't be surprised if they do it to you. Actually, Jesus says here, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake on account of me. Go to Acts chapter 5. Look at verses 40 and 41 and 42. Acts chapter 5. Look at verses 40 through 42. It says, And when they had called in the apostles, this is the same Sanhedrin that had put Jesus to death. When they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. They actually walked out of there rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer for Jesus. That's a crazy response. They were beaten and they walked out going, we were just beaten for Jesus. Isn't that cool? You know what we do when people reject us? We go and have a meeting on how can we change their mind and how can we make them like us? Maybe we were too harsh. Let's, let's soften it a little bit. Let's make it a little more palatable. No. Jesus said this was going to happen, and let's just keep doing what he told us to do, and they rejoice that they are considered worthy to suffer for his name. Now, I'm about to set you up. I'll just warn you now. Be ready. We, all, we love a lot of what comes with our association with Jesus, don't we? Anybody else love about a lot of the things that come with our association with Jesus? I mean, the Bible says there's salvation, peace, joy, all these things, right? Well, are you ready to embrace everything that comes with our association with Jesus? Go to Philippians chapter 1. Go to Philippians chapter 1 and look at verses 27 through 30.
Paul says, let your, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. By the way, that means you're working together in your church for the faith of the gospel, not for your pet peeve and what's going on in the latest dispute in your church. And not frightened by any, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you, that's your gift, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You remember back in Romans chapter 8 when I read to you that if we're children, we're co-heirs with Christ and heirs of God, children of God, co-heirs with Christ, if we suffer with him? Did you remember when I read to you in Hebrews chapter 12 how we've forgotten the word of encouragement or exhortation that addresses you as sons? Um, if you're God's child, he's going to discipline you and shape you and mold you. And he's going to use, well, all discipline is painful at the time, but not pleasant. But later it produces righteousness. Folks, if people at your condo don't like you because of who you are in Christ and they treat you differently or if wherever it is that you're living, if because of your relationship with Christ, people actually treat you badly, guess what? That's evidence that you're walking with Jesus and that's a good thing. It's been granted to us not only to believe in him, but to suffer. If you're not going through this kind of stuff in some way or another, guess what? You better check whether or not you're saved. Because that is a part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. We want a life where we get to go to heaven and everybody likes us down here. Not going to happen. If you're in Christ, it's not going to happen. If the world hates you, don't be surprised. They hated Jesus. And if you claim his name, they're going to hate you also. It's okay. That's all right. But Jim, I, I've heard in my churches that we're going to change the world and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna, we're gonna radically transform everything and we're going to bring about the kingdom and the church is going to just transform. I don't see that in the Bible, do you? Jesus said... Wides the path that goes to destruction. Many go that way. Narrows the road that leads to eternal life. And few there be that find it. Folks, don't get caught up in all this preaching out there today that says, if we would just play their game, they'll eventually like us and we'll just bring them all in. And like some preachers are saying, we got to unhitch us from the Old Testament and just deal with the New Testament so we can reach this world today that sees two different gods when they read the Old and the New. And all this junk that's going on out there, in order to try to soften the truth of the Bible, we actually aren't sharing the Word of God. And our churches may be getting fuller and fuller and fuller. But the church itself is now, well, I won't go as dying because Jesus said he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't stop it. But don't be trying to focus on church growth. That sounds crazy because I went to seminary and I had all the classes where they taught us the church growth spiral and how to grow from 200 to 400 and how to grow from 400 to 800 and all this stuff. And we were all taught to measure church growth, didn't you? And that kind of, you say, well, I don't remember that. Yeah, you were. Remember when you grew up in, in, in church and at the front of the church they had those plaques and it said, how many in Sunday school? How many in worship last week? Remember? You were taught to measure how we were doing. By the way, some of you get mad at your churches if they don't put in the bulletin how much the offering was last week and whether we're above budget or not. Can I say something to you in love? Knock it off. Stop it. Stop measuring how we're doing and just do what he's asked you to do. Paul said, one plants and other waters. It's God who takes care of the increase. We have been taught to focus on the process. God's responsible for the product. We're to focus on the journey. God's responsible for the destination. And the church has been taught to measure how we're doing. Are we meeting budget? Are we increasing in our numbers? Measuring the stuff that God never told us to focus on. And it's pulled us out of the abiding relationship. And if you're more interested in whether or not you're growing your church, you're actually going to start compromising some of the truth of the gospel. Because actually, if you look at the scriptures, when Jesus preached the truth, many people left. But he'll build his church and gates of hell aren't going to stop it. You just want to be a part of what he's doing. And the church today 
Well, I think Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, you think you're rich and have need of nothing? You think you're spiritual. But we read that and we think, oh, you think you have money. No, no, no. Whenever you see the rich and poor in the scripture, it's always tied to spiritually rich and poor, right? In other words, what he said to the church in the last days was, you think you're spiritual and you got lots of it. But you don't realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Folks, those are all descriptions of the lost. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. See, if you were hot, you'd be mine. If you're cold, you'd know you were cold. But the fact that you're lukewarm and you think you're okay when you're not, the rapture is about to occur. And when I gather my bride, there's going to be a lot of you who are spit out. And the church today is too busy focusing on how do we get more members? How do we get more people? How do we get more young people? How do we get more singles? How do we get more whatever? And we've been taught to focus on church growth when Jesus said, just follow me and don't be surprised if the numbers get smaller. By the way, you want proof that God doesn't really, isn't as concerned with local church numbers as we've been taught? In the book of Acts, you see that when Peter preached at Pentecost through the power of the Spirit, 3,000 people believed. That's pretty cool. But then, um, oh, by the way, if you compare Peter to Jesus, you're going to think Peter's way better than Jesus because he only had at least 500 after three years of preaching. Peter had 3,000 in one sermon. Be careful of that measuring stuff. A couple chapters later, the number grows to 5,000. Now there's 5,000 in the church. Okay, Jim, now we're talking. That's what we want to hear. No. Um, then a persecution broke out, broke out against the church because of the stoning of Stephen. And because of the persecution against the church, they were all scattered. God took that church of 5,000 there in Jerusalem and blew it all up and sent them all off. Local church numbers aren't where God is, and neither should you be. I'm also going to say something to you for this and for those who need to hear it. Stop judging your pastor over whether or not the church is growing. Is he preaching the word? That's what you should be focusing on. Is there evidence of the spirit in him? That's all we should be focusing on. You leave the rest to him. All right. I've got good news for you. Good. I wrote in my notes. Good, because we could use some right now. <laughs> Not only is persecution for Christ's sake proof that you're in the kingdom, great is your reward in heaven. Did you see that back in Matthew chapter 5? Look at it again. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great. Verse 12, rejoice, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Matthew chapter 19, verse 29. Let me read it to you real quick. Matthew 19, verse 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. God's keeping track. God's keeping track. So if you share the gospel in love with your neighbor and they say, I don't want you to ever talk to me about that again. Guess what you can say to yourself as you walk back into the house? As you pray for them, you can think, cha-ching. We walk thinking, well, what did I do wrong? How could I do it differently? No, no, no. I actually was sharing the gospel in the city of New Orleans one time, going door to door and just inviting people to church and sharing the gospel. And this man came out, realized who I was. He spit a big one right here. And even did this. He wouldn't even speak to me. It, would, it was against his religion to even speak to me. He spit on me and did this. Guess what? Cha-ching. Cha-ching. God knows. He remembers. So, get rid of how we've looked at success and not success when it comes to measuring how people react. And just go share the good news of Jesus Christ. I hope Tim and Margie come to know Jesus. But if they don't, I'm still going to be rewarded. Did you catch that? Blessed are you, if you're persecuted for, the, for my name's sake, great is your reward in heaven. Not great your reward if they get saved. Great your reward. For so they persecuted the prophets after you. By the way, did the people ever respond real good to Isaiah's preaching? Actually, he was told they're not going to listen, they're not going to hear. Did they respond good to Jeremiah's preaching? 
Have you ever read Jeremiah? They, they would even come to him and say, please tell us now, we're going to listen. Whatever God says, we promise we'll do it. Okay, here's what God says. <laughs> You're lying. And they beat him up and threw him in a well. Guess what? Great is their reward. And great is your reward and my reward. So let's stop measuring things the way the church has been measuring. Let's go now back to Matthew chapter 5. We've got 10 minutes and I think we can do it. Look at verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp or put it under a basket, but on, on its stand, and it gives light to, in all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. We won't have time tonight to deal with the light of the world. We're going to deal tonight in the time we have left with being salt. Now, we're most likely very familiar with these verses, but the context of them may have been lost by some of us. Does anybody know what the context of you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world are now? When did Jesus say you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Right at the end of what? The Beatitudes. You're going to see in the context, hopefully, that you being the salt of the earth and the light of the world is tied to everything that he's just said in the Beatitudes. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, has just finished listing what we call the Beatitudes or the description of what a kingdom person, a true born-again believer, looks like. Jesus sums up all of the previous descriptions by calling us, the true believers, salt and light. Now, salt has many attributes or characteristics that match what Jesus has just described in the Beatitudes. In other words, I'm going to list a few of them. Salt adds flavor. You all know that, right? It's a flavor enhancer. We're actually supposed to be people that when we come into a room, things are enhanced in a good way. There should be joy that comes into the room, peace that comes into the room, happiness, those types of things, gentleness. When we come in, people should not be going, oh, here they are again. They should actually be going, hey, don't know why I kind of like this person. They're fun to be around. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Even the sinners, how'd they react when they saw Jesus? They were glad to see him. They felt loved, even though he never approved of their lifestyle, and he would share with them the truth. They were excited that Jesus came into town. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 10. We give thanks, Paul says, to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of the hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And, we, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Did you see that? For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He says, one of the reasons we know that what happened there in Thessalonica was real was it wasn't just received that you listen to the words. It was evidenced by your changed life and the conviction and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the middle of affliction and suffering because of Christ and losing your property and losing your jobs and all that stuff that happened, word began to spread to other towns we go to where we didn't even have to tell them about what happened because they had already heard how you responded so amazingly to the gospel. Folks, if you as a true follower of Jesus Christ go through sickness and end up in the hospital, hopefully you add flavor to the hospital. No, not because you left tracks on your table, not because you put Bible verses on the head of your bed, but because of the gentleness and the peace and the joy and the trust you had in the Lord. 
Word should spread throughout the hospital about what's going on with this person. And I know this person's very, very sick, but you see how they're reacting? Salt adds flavor. Oh, salt also acts as a preservative. By the way, does, if you pack meat, salt, with, try again, pack meat in salt, will that keep it from totally decaying? No, it just slows it down. We're not going to stop the world from going the way they're going. The Bible's very clear. There's going to be godlessness in the last days. It's going to get worse and worse. It doesn't matter who we elect. It's going to happen. Salt is a preservative, though, so we should be involved in the, in the voting process to hopefully slow the decay in this world. But that's why he's put us here. I could give you more scriptures on that, but... Um, well, I'll just give you one. Go to your in 1 Thessalonians. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look real quickly. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord's already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So here what Paul says. He says, I know you're going through horrible suffering right now to the early church. Don't let anybody think, fool you into thinking that this is the last days and that the, the, the day of the Lord's already occurred. Because, you know, the day of the Lord's going to be all this wickedness that happens during the tribulation period and all that. By the way, if you're curious what the day of the Lord is, the day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the tribulation period, carries right on into, in the good part, in the millennial kingdom. But they were already being told, well, the day of the Lord's already come. Look at all this bad stuff that's going on. No, not yet. And also, like I told you, there's going to be this Antichrist that comes on the scene, but he won't be revealed until he who restrains has been removed. By the way, that's not the Holy Spirit totally, because the Holy Spirit's still going to be on the earth during the tribulation, or else no one could be saved. Plus, is there anywhere you can go that the Holy Spirit's not there? Remember what it says in Psalm 139, where can I go to flee from your presence? If I go here, you're there. If I go down to the Sheol, you're there. The Holy Spirit's not going to be removed from the earth or else no one could be saved during the tribulation. And we see in Revelation chapter 7 and 14, there's going to be thousands upon thousands that are saved during the tribulation. So who is restraining the wickedness in this world right now? The Holy Spirit through the life of the church, the bride of Christ. When the church is removed, Buddy, you don't want to be on the earth when that happens. Is wickedness increasing right now? I mean, just think of all the people that are just killing their kids and then themselves and all the things that are happening. People are just going into nightclubs and just shooting people and people that are getting in hotel rooms and just setting up all their stuff and just picking people off. Wickedness is increasing. Oh, you haven't seen nothing yet. The church is still here. But when the church is gone, the salt has been removed. It's going to get bad. By the way, salt also produces thirst. Just write this down and go look at it later on in Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 30. Paul and Silas have been beaten for their faith in Christ. They're in the inner cell in stocks, and they're singing and praising God at midnight. The chains fall off, the doors fly open, the jailer thinks that he's, all the guys have escaped and he's going to have to kill himself because he's going to be put to death anyway because his job was to keep the prisoners. And listen, Paul says, relax, we're all here. Not just Paul and Silas. Nobody left. And the, the, the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Isn't that amazing? Salt produces thirst. Hopefully, people that run into you say, I want what you have. What are you drinking? And hopefully, you don't say it's light beer. <laughs> Even though sometimes on airplanes, you smell like it. <laughs> salt melts coldness. Those of you that grew up up north, once you throw salt down to melt the ice... Salt melts coldness. Again, write this down. Look at it later on. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Matthew 27, verses 38 through 44. Luke 23, 32 through 43. The scriptures talk about the fact that when, 
You ready for those again? All right, we'll go again. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. 1 and 2. Matthew 27, 38 through 44. And Luke 23, 32 through 43. I'm going to explain the Matthew 27 and the Luke 23 passages to you. Because of time, I don't have time to read them to you because we've got two minutes. But we're going to make it. If you read Matthew 27, verses 38 through 44, you'll see that when Jesus was crucified on that cross, there were two other people that were crucified with him. They were robbers, and they both were crucified with him. And Matthew tells us that they both were mocking him. They both made fun of him. But one of them, who had been mocking him, by the time a few hours had passed on the cross, he changed his mind. And Luke's account in 23, 32 through 43 tells us that at some point that one of the thieves who was mocking him starts going after the other thief and says, wait a minute, don't you realize we're getting what we deserve? This guy hasn't done anything wrong. And he says to Jesus, remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Salt melts coldness. Lastly, salt heals wounds. Salt is used sometimes to heal wounds. Psalm 38, 34, 18, write it down. Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 147, 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. I'm going to read that one to you in just a second. And Galatians 6, 1 and 2. That's Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 147, 1 through 3. 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. In 1 Thessalonians 5, look at verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with them all. We're supposed to be building people up. People are wounded. People are struggling. People are having trouble with sin. We're not to tear them down. We're not to say, look how good I'm doing and bad you're doing. We're to come alongside of them. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. If you see your brother who's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness and meekness. Our job because of the fact that we're at peace with God, not because we're better than anybody, but because he's done it. It should have such a truth that's sunk into our hearts that we just want to tell everybody he loves you. And by his grace, you can be where he wants you to be. And you come alongside of them if they're wounded. Sometimes they're self-inflicted wounds, but we still need to be gentle and help those around us. Because it's by the grace of God that we're where we are, correct? But if a Christian is walking in the flesh and not the spirit... Their witness will be ineffective and trampled under the feet of men. They will have lost their saltiness. Years ago when I was pastor in Chicago, this man Bruce showed up with his wife. Her name was Lynn. Bruce was a Christian. Lynn was not. She was a Buddhist. But they came to church and, and I, I asked Bruce, said, what brought you to our church? Because I loved hearing the stories of God was doing such an amazing work. He said, well, I work across the desk. My desk and the desk that faces it, right across from me is a man named Brian who goes to this church. And Brian was one of the deacons and leaders in our church. And he said one day he found out I was a Christian and he was shocked and he called me a chameleon. I said, Brian called you a chameleon and you want to come to our church. I want to hear this story. He said, I was convicted by God. He said, the reason why Brian called me a chameleon is because I was the kind of person that could act like whatever group I was in. And because I acted like whatever group I was in, Brian, when he found out I was a Christian, said he had no idea that I was a Christian. You're a chameleon if you're a Christian because you pretend to be whatever you're with. And he said, God used that to convict me, and I need to get right. And Bruce started coming to church with his wife. And within so many months, Lynn gave her life to Jesus Christ. Turned from Buddhism to Christianity, but it was a process over time. But it happened because one brother in love said, you can't be a Christian and act like the world. you lost your saltiness, folks? When you honk your horn in traffic, you lost your saltiness. When you grumble when the boss gives you more work just like everybody else does, when you make fun of the new person like everybody else does, you've lost your saltiness. 
If someone spills a beer on you and you blow up on them, you've lost your saltiness. Blessed are those who are salty in the good way. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.